Good morning, everyone. Well, it's, um, it's meditation time. And today, um, for this first Sunday of Black History Month, um, we'll also share in communion um, after we do our meditation. But um, we're going to practice today um, Visio Divina, which is um, a spiritual practice in which you meditate on an image of some sort. It might be um, a photograph or some type of visual art. Um, to use Epperly's word from the chapter this week that we read, um, we're going to do some collective gazing this morning for our meditation. So um, there are some printed copies of a piece of art on your on your table or somewhere near you. And there's, there's also um, the image on the screen. Let me introduce you to this piece, and then um, we'll kind of get started on our meditation. Um, the piece called Deposition um, is reminiscent of European Christian art, but um, the artist has reimagined this scene um, using an urban setting, as you can see, and substituting African-American characters for um, those European uh, folks that we are kind of used to seeing in historic Christian art. This particular piece appears to be um, like those scenes that we have seen of Jesus' friends and family um, handling his body after the crucifixion. All right. So um, before we begin the actual Visio Divina and begin to gaze on the image, um, let's just take a moment to get centered. If you want to just close your eyes for just a couple of breaths, I want us to pause Inhale deeply and allow our bodies to fill completely with life-giving, mind-clearing air. So just take a really, really deep breath, as deep as you can. And when you don't think you can hold any more air, blow it all out. Let all the distractions go as you exhale. And do that one more time. A big, deep, full breath in. And then release all the distractions, all the clutter. And now I invite you to open your eyes and to gaze at the artwork in front of you, whether you're holding the piece of paper or whether you're gazing at the screen. In our reading this week, Bruce Epperly reminds us that gazing begins with the senses, transforms our heart and mind and inspires our hands to reach out to those Christ loved. So engage your senses. Take in the entire picture. Notice shapes, colors, lighting. Notice the detail of the background and the foreground. And once you have visually canvassed the entire work, allow your attention to be drawn to a focal point that might be different for each of us. This is a moment to invite the spirit to guide your eyes, your mind, and your heart. We'll take a pause here while you meditate on that part of the picture that has captured your attention. As you're looking that, at that piece of the work, you might ask yourself, how is the Spirit speaking in this moment and through this visual art? Why do you think a particular place captured your attention? 
Is there an invitation there? Is there a memory? As you reflect on the art with both your mind and heart, what emotions are rising up within you? Is there a word or a phrase that describes the feelings you're experiencing? Let's sit with those feelings and any sensations that you might be having for just a couple of breaths. One of the last steps in a Visio Divina exercise is to respond. So I ask, how might the Spirit be calling you to respond or to grow in light of what you're seeing, sensing, and experiencing through the art? What prayers are rising up within you? And even if you have no words to describe those feelings exactly or to articulate what is happening within your soul, we can know that the Spirit of God is with us here in the silence. And we can be assured that the Spirit prays on our behalf even when we don't have the words. We can simply rest in this moment, knowing that we are loved. It's who we are, right? We are going to transition to a time of communion, but we're still going to consider the painting as we do so. So I would um, invite those who have the communion elements to kind of take them around to the tables I'm going to continue to talk a little bit and frame this time. Uh, so I invite you to consider the painting again with the communion meal in your mind. At Crosswalk, we regularly share some type of bread or small bite in a cup here together in this community. We do it to celebrate God's goodness we do it to remember Jesus' extraordinary life and the way he died. We do it as an expression of gratitude for the Spirit's invitation to be co-laborers with God. And we do it as a commitment to shalom for the earth and all of its inhabitants. And what the scripture tells us about the communion meal, is that um, Jesus and his friends were together the night before he was unjustly executed. They had what we might call a dinner party. They ate little bites. We know they, they dipped their hands in common dishes, probably bumping into each other as they did. They passed cups of wine around the table they were a community, flawed, messy, and yet bound together by their shared human experience and by the Spirit of God that worked in and through their lives. So consider the painting again. I see a similar community, human, messy, bound together by, at the very least, this shared experience of tragedy, clearly filled with love for each other and for their fallen friend. And I imagine that in the hours before this scene that we see, this group of friends and family may have enjoyed a meal together in someone's living room or family room. Perhaps they were watching a football game or a movie Maybe there was pizza, bags of open chips that they
They reach together into the bag to grab at the same time, colliding and maybe spilling chips on the floor. I imagine um, Coke sloshing out of cups as they jumped up to cheer for their team or perhaps toasted their friendship. But by the next day, one of them was gone and all their lives forever changed by what they witnessed and experienced together. This week in our reading, um, we're challenged to be awake and aware to the deep pain and suffering in our world. By leaning into that pain, instead of averting our eyes, we can grow more compassionate, more empathetic. We can join together in spiritual solidarity to be more like Jesus who we read in Philippians, did not cling to his status, but instead gave himself fully to the human experience, even unto suffering and death. So this morning we are sharing chips and soda. Perhaps like the last meal of these young people in the piece of art, And we remember not only Jesus' life, but also the countless lives of black and brown siblings whose lives were cut tragically short by acts of violence and injustice. We still celebrate the great gift of God's love, which enables us to be community to one another and to serve our community the love that empowers us to be tellers of truth and agents of reconciliation. We accept the invitation of God's spirit to keep working and striving, and we recommit ourselves to the long, slow work of shalom. And so together we can say, may it be so. I invite you to eat and drink. Thank you, Angie. That was powerful and meaningful. Kind of to dovetail on uh, what uh, Angie just took us through, there's a song that I want to offer you, and you're welcome to sing it along with me. Um, it's, it's been made most famous by uh, one of my favorite artists of all time, Nat King Cole. Uh, that's the kind of music that I was taught to sing. So I can do the American songbook stuff. I can do theater stuff. I can't do rock and roll or country to save my life. Just It's just wrong when I do that. Uh, some classical stuff here and there. But I love that vibe and I love that stuff. And this particular song is really interesting because it has a very positive message. Uh, but it's haunting in its tones. So this song is called Nature Boy. <laughs> A boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy and sad Very wise was And then one day, magic day, he passed my way. While we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this except. 
just love and be loved in return. So, a question for you is how long does it take to learn to be loved and to love in return? How long does it take to learn to be loved? The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved. In return. Thanks for humoring me. When you come here, I just inflict whatever I want on you. That's just, you're sitting ducks. <laughs> Uh, so as we jump into the teaching today, we're going to jump in pretty quick. Um, we'll get into some juicy stuff uh, the further we go, but we, we catch up with Jesus. This is a text, by the way, that is going to be uh, read and studied all over the world uh, today, and we're doing that too. Before I get to that, though, um, several of you were at the Black History Month celebration yesterday. Raise your hand if you were. All right. You get an extra jewel in your crown just for showing up yesterday <laughs> and for showing back up today. Um, it was great. Uh, we just keep getting better. I say we, like I had much to do with it. Uh, there's a team that thinks about this all year long and puts the pieces together. And uh, it was a really great experience. <clears throat> I think one of the most powerful uh, parts for me uh, was there was a student from American high school uh, who shared a poem that he created that was 10 minutes by memory. Uh, and passionate. It was stunning and jaw-dropping, and he got a standing ovation, which he deserved. I'd like to find out how I can get a hold of that kid, and <laughs> let's bring him here uh, to do it again, because that was just an incredible, uh, incredible experience. So anyway, you missed out if you didn't come, and uh, it, is a, it is a live stream, so you could go back and watch it if you want, uh, and fast forward through the, through the in-between periods or pauses or whatever, so hope you'll do that. Okay, so Jesus has just started his ministry uh, in full, like we looked at last week, and we catch up with him uh, here. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. Now, I just need to say right away, don't freak out at this. This seems like terribly inappropriate. Like the woman just got done being sick and immediately she's thrust into the kitchen because nobody else knows how to make a sandwich, right? Uh, that's not what's happening here. Um, I mean, they did have gender roles back then for sure uh, that are even more strict than the ones that we're still trying to claw our way out of today. But you need to see with a different lens here that you have a hospitality culture and this woman knows that her son uh, is coming home uh, with some buddies and with Jesus, who by now is a growing celebrity. The last thing she wants to do is be sick in bed. And sick in bed then with a high fever, um, that's not like pop a couple Tylenol or ibuprofen and you'll be good in a couple hours. This could be, this could be a death sentence back then uh, because they didn't have the stuff to deal with things uh, like that. So she could literally uh, be worried about her very life. And Jesus comes and restores her to wellness. And what is her natural response uh, when uh, she is well? She wants to do what she really wants to do, which is provide hospitality for her guests because that's what you do in that culture. And to not provide hospitality would have been a great embarrassment to her. So there's a part of her that longs to do this because that's what's done, and it's kind of a special guest. 
Uh, so while there certainly are some gender things going on there, see it for the beauty of what it is and get the message that is worth taking home. That could it be that we're, we're seeing a pattern here, that when Jesus does a restorative work for people, the natural response is to serve other people. When we have experienced some aspect of salvation, of being made more well, healed in some way, perhaps our natural response after that is to do something for somebody else. So it continues. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Now, like I said last week, um, on demon possession and other kinds of healing things, just let the story be the story. Uh, if you have too much of a difficult time getting literal with it, that's fine. Uh, just appreciate what these authors are trying to get to us to say, Jesus is doing a big thing here. Uh, he was known by third parties as what they called a, a, a magician, uh, a miracle worker. Uh, so we know that God flowed through him in some ways to do profound things. How they interpreted things and how they understood things, we might take issue with that, but just see it at face value. Jesus is a conduit of God's spirit and good things are happening. Well, before daybreak the next morning, as he often did, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So we need to learn something more about Jesus here is he's not just staying in his most comfortable areas, but he's reaching out where he's not as comfortable, where he doesn't know the people as well, and he's taking the risk because when you've experienced the power and love of God in your life, it appears through Jesus that the natural response is to take it further and further. The Apostle Paul experienced this as well, and he, to a church in ancient Corinth, uh, said this, among other things. He says, when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I, find, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Uh, earlier than this, uh, Paul says things like, when I'm with Jewish people, I put my Jewish hat on so I can relate to the Jewish people. When I'm with non-Jewish people, I, I take that hat off and I talk Gentile, non-Jewish stuff uh, with them so that they can hear this good news because it transformed my life and I want them to know about it. And so he's willing to put down his stuff, uh, get uncomfortable uh, to make sure that other people uh, hear all of these good things. Well, there's a passage uh, from the book that Epperly gives us uh, that talk about a, a different way of being in the world, a different way of doing spirituality uh, that Francis, St. Francis, St. Clair, and Bonaventure uh, all spoke of. And so we get uh, this quote here from Epperly. St. Francis and St. Clair reflect an alternative world-affirming spirituality. The spiritual path taken by most monastics in the 12th and 13th centuries, it's when they did their thing, could be described as a journey of ascent from earthly to heavenly things. And what that means is uh, that they would spend their time, folk, like they'd go away instead of spending time uh, in and amidst people, uh, it would be asceticism to the max. So they would focus on heavenly things and meditate and think about the world to come and didn't really care a lot about the world right now. But in contrast to this path of world denial, Francis and Claire took another path toward God. Their mysticism reflected a horizontal ecstasy in which the journey inward and the journey outward are one and the same. Going deep within, they purified their passion, enabling it to be an aid instead of a hindrance to spiritual maturity. By placing ourselves in God's presence throughout the day, we experience God as the reality in whom we live and move and have our being. Francis opened to God in every encounter. Synchronicity abounds, and when we live prayerfully, every interchange and choice become an opportunity to experience God's wisdom guiding our daily lives. 
Spiritual practices open our whole being to God's call. So Francis was um, a practicing panentheist before he knew to call it that, which is simply a fancy word to say that God, that everything is in God. That's what panentheism means, everything in God. And it means that we're swimming in God rather than God being distant up there, which was the, the primary cosmology of the day. We believe that God is everywhere, and therefore we can expect to see aspects of God, semblances of God show up all the time uh, in our interactions with each other. So Francis would attune himself to this reality, and in every conversation he had, he'd be wondering, how is God in this conversation? And not just with people. Uh, he would talk to animals and plants. Uh, he's been, he was known for calming down a pack of coyotes who were scaring villagers. Uh, he had a serious conversation with a wolf that was freaking out to uh, the town of Gubbio. <laughs> uh, he even talked and thanked a bunch of birds who were singing their songs to uh, of praise to God, he said, and then kind of asked them to quiet down a bit because he was having a hard time meditating and thinking to himself. <laughs> so, so he really treated uh, his life like he was not separate from the created world, but right there in it and just being a part of it. Uh, you might think that's nuts. Have any of you ever talked to your pet? Right? Have you had a stern word for your dog or cat? Right? <laughs> right. So we're all a little bit like Francis that way. Uh, to help us hear a little bit more of uh, what Bruce Epperly thought, uh, I interviewed him this past week, and I want to share some stuff today and the next couple Sundays uh, that he offers us. So hear Bruce in his own words talking about uh, this uh, being open to everything. And I'll go back to Francis and Claire and, and Bonaventure for this uh, uh they believed that God addressed them in every situation. They believed that God addressed them from the inside out and the outside in. So that, that uh, if I would put this in, in Whiteheadian language or process language, the, the aim of God or God's vision is not just coming from to me, but it's coming from my neighbor to me through God. And that we're always on holy ground wherever we show up. And that part of our spiritual life is the ability to see the holiness around us. And if we see the holiness around us, we also uh, have to see that which defaces the holiness around us, that which uh, neglects it. Uh, you know, again, back to Jesus Maria Jose, that, uh, that even if we have a, a very robust notion of the border control and even if we build a wall the, 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 you know still we have to have some way to respond compassionately to those who don't make it through the wall uh whether we have a buffer zone uh that we cooperate with mexico to to provide care for these people we still have to have compassion they are god's children uh we have to mourn the death of of, of children and adults on october sixth uh, or seventh, and we also have to mourn the death in Gaza. And we, we don't take sides with the people even when we uh, 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 disagree with a policy. Uh, uh, you know, we, we uh, again, the, I think again of, of uh, people who have been influenced on me as, as, a, as a person like Brother Lawrence or Pierre de Cassade, uh, the, you know, the practice of the presence of God happens when you go out the door and your neighbor walks by. Uh, even if you're a scholar, even if you're a monk, uh, I guess I feel that uh, that when Mother Teresa or Saint Teresa said, "Do something beautiful for God," uh, that was an invitation for me to aspire to be conscious about the impact I have in my relationships, and to try to save and be part of the saving process of the world one moment at a time. Uh, it doesn't take any more, as I tell the grandchildren about chores. Do it, if you do it now, it takes about the same time as it does as, as if you, I'm trying to learn this myself, uh, as if you put it off. And there's less hassle. <laughs> and the same thing to do an act of kindness takes nothing other than doing it. And it may raise the level of, of, uh, of decency in the planet, uh, spiritual level in the planet, uh, the opportunity for somebody to 
to grow because you showed up. Epperly goes on to say, Franciscan spirituality reminds us that our prayers connect us to all creation and that even something as apparently insignificant as a prayer can open our hearts and hands and tip a situation from death to life. Going inward, we awaken to our pain and the pain of the universe and receive guidance to respond to the overwhelming crises of climate change, poverty, starvation, incivility, and racism. Prayer leads to solidarity and compassion and expands our circle of influence so that one child at a time, one call to a political representative at a time, and one sacrificial gift at a time, one act of simplification at a time, the world is healed. So the primary premise that Epperly is giving us based on Francis's teaching is when we spend more time in contemplation, meditation, prayer, thinking about others and situations, uh, the more compassionate we become. And I think that's a novel idea, and I have more to say about this, but two examples that he gives out of, his, uh, out of this chapter uh, are really good. Uh, one has to do with just staying in tune or attuned uh, with God. And he learned this uh, when he was much younger, uh, where as he's breathing in, sort of like a walking around prayer, as he's breathing in, he says, I breathe the Spirit deeply in and blow it gratefully out again. And the idea with this is it just keeps you aware that you are in the presence of God everywhere. So let's say it together, and so you get it into your, into your head. I breathe the Spirit deeply in and blow it gratefully out again. I learned a different one that's kind of like that, a little simpler. Just as I would breathe in, I would say more of you. And I was exhale, I would say less of me. Not to diminish me as a created being, but as a way of saying, I want to be really attuned to you. <laughs> and I want to be driven uh, by your vision for life, not just uh, my own distorted one. So I breathe the spirit deeply in and blow it gratefully out again. And this other one is called uh, Coffee with, well, I called it Coffee with Jesus. Uh, he didn't call it this in his book. Uh, he talked about it just, I think, spending time with Jesus or something like this. I'm calling it Coffee with Jesus because there's a crosswalker that calls it Coffee with Jesus. And so uh, she was telling our Praxis group one day uh, that uh, she was curious about how to develop a real dynamic faith relationship. And uh, she just kind of came up with this idea that, well, why don't I treat my relationship with God like I treat any normal relationship I'd have with a friend? So she says, what do I do with my friends? I go have coffee with my friends. And so she literally carves out time during her day where she goes and gets her coffee, grabs her journal, and she has an out loud conversation, sometimes out loud, sometimes in her journal, uh, with God. And she and her husband are retired now, so she tells her husband that she's going to go talk with Jesus now. <laughs> so if, he, if she hears voices or he hears voices, then you know uh, he knows that she's not going crazy. Uh, there's a purpose happening here. And actually, it's absolutely brilliant. And she spends a serious amount of time, like 30, 40, 50 minutes, having her conversation with Jesus out loud. And that's actually part of the genius. Because when we actually say things out loud, things happen in our brain in different ways than when we just think them. Uh, so I encourage you to consider that. And nothing is off limits in her conversation. Sometimes she says it's it's like very trivial things about, well, this is what I'm doing today, and this is what I did yesterday. Sometimes it's like, boy, that really bugged me yesterday. Or sometimes it's much much deeper and grittier uh, than that. But just this idea of spending time to do that makes perfect sense. So maybe for you, it's not coffee you know, in some secluded place. Maybe for you, it's on your commute uh, to work. Uh, you've got some time. Um, People will just think you're talking on the phone when they see your mouth moving. Uh, they won't necessarily think you're crazy unless they know you. And uh, so it might work out fine. But uh, make that your time, you know, to talk to God uh, or, or take that hike or whatever the case may be. Um, the whole point of these exercises is to increase our ongoing conversation with God because it has an effect on us and therefore it has an effect on everyone we touch. However, I want to add an addendum uh, to this that Epperly does talk about in terms of uh, embracing our pain and going deep with pain. But it just dawned on me this week as I was thinking about uh, the beginning of Black History Month 
and uh, some of the ills that we have in our culture and in our world, that maybe just praying and having quiet time with God maybe, not, maybe isn't enough. That maybe we need to add a little grittier element to it uh, to help us think things through. And I want to say that because just knowing things are things that we need to do doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are changed or our minds are changed. And so thinking about black history, I thought, you know, um, we had 400 years. We're, we're into 400 years of black history in the United States. And it took uh, most of those 400 years for us to figure out that owning another person is wrong. And it took another 100 years for us to say, you know what, if our if our government documents suggest that we're all created equal, then that ought to actually manifest itself in reality. That people should be able to buy a home uh, wherever they want to buy a home. If they, are, if they can go to college and they want to go to college, they should be able to get into any college regardless of their skin tone. Uh, they should be able to get a loan uh, like anybody else could get a loan regardless of their skin tone. I bring these things up because in our country for a very long time, if your skin was darker than mine, and the darker, the worse it would be for you, uh, the reality for you was more and more severely limited. You'd be redlined, uh, only being able to buy homes in certain neighborhoods. If you could get a loan, the terms were probably terrible. Uh, you could go to college, but only black colleges, uh, and there would be very few of those with very limited capacity. So while it may have sounded good, like, oh yeah, there's a place for everybody, not so. And in some parts of our country, the whole separate but not equal thing uh, was alive and well. So you'd have white drinking fountains, you'd have white places to sit on the bus, white bathrooms, and black ones correspondingly. Just because the laws were changed didn't mean people's hearts were changed. Can we agree on that? Uh, and I, I know that uh, we wish that it were true. I wish that uh, having a black president would have changed everything. Now, it did elevate things. It helped uh, people recognize what was possible in our country, and that's cool. Uh, but it also heightened some <laughs> racial prejudice at the same time. Uh, so that alone doesn't do it. And having Kamala Harris as uh, a person of color, as our, our vice president right now, that unfortunately doesn't just all of a sudden make it all better, even though it's a good sign. Something's got to change to change the heart. And I don't think the heart gets changed unless we do something to allow for that to happen. And the thing that I think we need to do is a painful thing to do that we don't want to do. Because who wants more pain in our lives? Who wants the struggle? If it hits us in the face, we'll deal with it. But to actually invite it? And yet these are things that Francis did uh, his aha moment, his transforming moment, wasn't because he prayed diligently and just became this you know, better human being. I'm sure certainly he did to a degree. But it was that he faced his greatest fear, which was a leper colony. And he embraced the leper. The one that revulsed him, he embraced. And he spent his life working with lepers and leper colonies. He was transformed he understood them as human beings. He understood their pain and their agony, and he joined them in it. That was the secret sauce. Jesus did the same. Uh, he was known, famous, infamous perhaps, uh, for hanging out with the wrong people. Tax collectors who were seen as political traitors. Uh, prostitutes uh, who, for the most part, for no choice of their own, uh, were, were sequestered into this life work and he would be among them. Uh, and his own well, leper colonies, he was with them. He was with people who had other infirmities that caused them to be rejected from others. Jesus was no stranger to their pain. And in fact, he was so bold to say in the Beatitudes that those who are downtrodden, those who are, are full of sorrow, theirs is the kingdom of God. He was on to something. This withness of the other, breaking down the barrier of the other, helps us actually love the other more. 
and actually makes real change happen. I, I don't understand some things that happen in our country. I, I, I mentioned this in my email um, this past week. I, as we think about Black History Month, and not to poke the bear, but I just don't understand uh, how in our country we can, we still have an issue with like the Confederate flag. I do not understand why that has any place in our country. It makes no sense to me. The symbol of the most egregious act against the United States itself. And we still allow it to be celebrated in a significant part of our country. I just don't get it. And people from other parts of the world, particularly Europe, don't get it because they saw a similar thing happen in Nazi Germany. And there are, it is, <laughs> it is not, the, the Nazi flag is not going to fly along uh, in Germany. It is not tolerated because of what it represented. And all of that suggests is that we have ways to go to understand what is really going on in here. That anybody would ever <laughs> want to say, I support this. And that brings us to this exercise that Angie brought us today. And I need to tell on myself a little bit with this. Because my hunch is that uh, as long as we keep our Sunday school faces on, you'll say, oh, that was a wonderful that was a, that was a wonderful exercise, Angie. Thank you so much for leading us through this intellectual uh, pursuit for five minutes or so that we looked at a troubling picture of a young lad who was taken too soon and blah, 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 blah. Let's get real. When I see this picture, I've, I have two things that are coming into my head. The one is exactly what I just said. This is a scene of agony and pain. You've got a young guy here who we don't know what happened to him, uh, but he's clearly unconscious. Maybe, maybe he's dead. We're not sure. And he's got some friends or relatives or brothers. We're not, we're not sure who these people are, but they're trying to figure out how do we care for this guy that we love. And you've got a woman here who's just looking on, and you've got another friend here who's just beside himself with grief, doesn't know what, what to do. And there's some interesting details, like they're, they're on the outside of a church, and the church's wall here kind of looks like a fortress. And maybe that brick building in the background, maybe that's another church. Maybe this one here is a, you know, a Catholic church, and this brick one is a Baptist church. Who knows? He's not in it. We're supposed to see that. I noticed that his underwear is hanging out, uh, which is not uncommon. And so I see a, a, a symbol of agony here, a current scene, and we should. But I have to be honest that because of the culture that raised me, there are other voices that come into my head. Voices that I've heard repeated throughout my entire life, here in this space even. And I'm ashamed that I have to manage these voices. But I wonder if I'm the only one. I wonder if I'm the only one that hears a voice in my head when I see this and I say to myself, I wonder what he did to deserve that. I remember one time, uh, we're not quite out of COVID yet. And... Uh, a guy comes in the church who was a crosswalker. And, and get, don't get me wrong, um, a beautiful guy. Uh, he's since passed on, but a, a beautiful guy uh, that chose to stay in crosswalk even though we messed with him every week. <laughs> and uh, he came to me uh, one time. He would break COVID rules all the time. and he would, he would just come into the church, and I'm working on stuff. And he came walking back there. I was in the booth working on something and the tech stuff. And he comes over and says, Pastor Pete, I want to talk to you about George Floyd. He was a bad dude, Pastor Pete. What are we supposed, how are we supposed to feel about that? And he was voicing what a lot of people felt, but were very slow to say out loud. But George Floyd deserved what he got. That he was on drugs and he stole something. And therefore, why are we making such a big deal out of George Floyd's death? 
Why are people rioting in the streets for that? How do you really feel about this photo, this painting? Because if you are like me, and you think long enough, your very culture, maybe your family of origin, your friends, school, co-workers, different voices in the media, innuendo, they're in your head too. And if you look more like me, I would be highly surprised if the same words didn't cross your radar. What did he do to deserve that? And that is why we need to spend time with this. To break down those voices in our head which need to be broken down. To help us see what is just simply there. One, two, three, four, five human beings in agony. One may have lost his life, the four others looking on in agony. If this was your family, would you raise the same questions? If this was your brother, would you raise the same questions? If these were your cousins, if this was your street, would the same questions come over your mind? We need to spend time with the, with the pain and the agony of our own humanity so that we don't perpetuate it. We don't like to do it. It is not fun to admit that these voices are in our head, but guess what? You did not just wake up. You were not just born into a blank canvas world. You were born into a context that told you things about the world. And until we see those things for what they are, they inform us. They rule our lives more than we would ever care to admit. I am simply asking you, could it be that Jesus was able to be who he was and be a conduit for God the way he was because he identified with the pain that his people were going through? Could it be that he was one who challenged racial prejudice because someone held his face to the mirror and said, you are treating me as less than, and he learned from it? Could it be that St. Francis was changed for the same reason? It is hard work, but it is the work. And the irony is, when we choose not to do that work, not to be honest with ourselves about what's really happening here, we actually limit our capacity for the goodness of God to be at work in our lives. <laughs> the very thing we want, the peace of God, the flow of God working through us, being, being in step with God, for every time we choose to not take this kind of thing seriously and any, another, any number of other hot issues, we are saying, God... I don't need you on this one. I'll handle it from here. Because I, I don't want to look at that thing which you need me to look at. Do we have the courage to say to God, God, help me see myself. Help me know the steps I need to take. If for no other reason than our own narcissistic, self-centered <laughs> egos who want the most for ourselves. Because you will not get it unless you do the hard work. And that's enough preaching for today. And I say it, uh, I don't mean to make light of this. Um, we have come so far uh, in, our, in our history, and yet we still have so far to go. Uh, uh, you know, working on this stuff with Stephen, coming up with a list. You know, you, you can just find just for film and theater, you know, there's a top 100 list <laughs> of African Americans who have influenced just that, that genre alone. And yet some are so hidden uh, from our understanding. May it not always be so. Let's pray together. So God, uh, 
before I release this congregation from this torture, <laughs> uh, I pray that maybe your spirit uh, will resonate with us in some way. In fact, God, I would ask that if, if I have offended or frustrated anybody here today who's just mad that I even brought this stuff up and I've agitated, instead of bringing peace, I've made people angry or upset. God, I pray that, you're, that my friends, the people I love here, if I've upset them, I pray that your spirit will seek to their aid. to do the saving, well-being, healing work, to perhaps help them in their forgiveness process of me for saying anything that I said that was offensive. But God, I pray that your spirit might do more. That we would not run away from the questions. But that we would actually welcome your spirit to help us learn and grow. You are not after perfection, God, and so we shouldn't pretend to be perfect with you, but you are after our development. You are after our maturation. And these issues, these contentious issues, require maturity. Spirit of God, mature us. Help us. That we might be your conduits, your agents, your healing spirit presence in the world. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for enduring. Stay safe out there. Looks like you got a break in the weather to run to your car. So thank you for coming, and we will see you next week. Thanks a lot.